many, many years ago, back when the acronym CD meant a certificate of deposit, but <laughs> not compact disc, I was a linguistics graduate student at MIT here. And it was way late in November one year, I won't tell you what decade. I just returned to Cambridge from New York City where I did my very first linguistics paper at a conference. And it was then very late, one Thursday night, I was walking from Building 20, which no longer exists. I was walking across because I was going to go to hear Noam Chomsky speak on the South Park. And I'm thinking about how we're about to have this birthday party for Professor Chomsky. It's the graduate students who are going to put together a surprise birthday party for to celebrate his was it half a century of living? Yeah. <laughs> 50 years? I'm thinking about this, and then I noticed this figure coming out from a parking lot and it's approaching. And then I, I, I hear this, hi, Ann. It's, oh, it's Professor Chomsky. And he says, How was your talk in New York? And I said, it, You know, it's really good. I, I enjoyed it. It was nice. But I don't know, it was so formal and it made me feel so old, like I was 50 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to pull back the words wood. And he went, <clears throat> Then is spiking words. <laughs> so here he is. <laughs> this reminds me a little bit of a. They moved us after they destroyed Building 20, which Anne was talking about, which was a great mistake. It was a wonderful old building, a temporary World War II building, which was the best building on campus by far. Movable walls, uh, squirrels climbing up. Uh, inside the walls, uh, you know, windows <laughs> falling out, uh, noises from the garbage being taken out behind their windows, but terrific place to work. They put us in a fancy new building. Uh, you can, can't miss it if you walk on campus. And the first uh, seminar I had to give there, maybe 30 people, uh, I noticed I couldn't hear any of the students, which doesn't surprise me all that much, uh, but they couldn't hear me, which surprised me a little more until somebody finally pointed out to me that the ceiling is 30 feet high. And we asked why they can't put up an acoustic ceiling and they said well that would interfere with the decor of the building. Uh, so therefore tough luck, you just won't hear each other. That's what's known as progress I think. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try to make myself heard but uh, as I say India is the place to be. <laughs> the first question, Mr. Chomsky, comes from um, Chris, Christos Goudreau. How have your ideas on universal grammar changed over the years? Are you more or less convinced of the theory now than you were initially? Well, there's, there's a lot of confusion about the notion universal grammar. Uh, univer universal grammar had a traditional meaning, but in modern linguistics, last 50 years or so, it's had a technical meaning, which is not unrelated to the traditional meaning, but it's not identical either. Uh, universal grammar is just the name for the theory of the genetic component of the language faculty. I mean, transparently, there's some genetic component, right? Uh, there's a reason, say, why my granddaughter uh, uh, reflexively identified some part of her environment as language related, which is no small trick. Nobody knows how to duplicate that. Uh, and then more or less reflexively picked up the capacity that we're all now using. Whereas her uh, pet, uh, say, kitten or chimpanzee or songbird or whatever it may be, with exactly the same inputs, couldn't even take the first step can't identify part of the environment as language related, obviously not the later steps. Well, there are two possible answers to how that happens. Uh, one is it's a miracle. Uh, the other is there's a, she has some specific genetic capacity that's like the capacity that had her grow arms and not wings, let's say. Just some fixed, or had a mammalian visual system but not an insect visual system. Now, this is not controversial for anything except human higher mental faculties. For some reason, when people investigate human higher mental faculties, they have to be uh, insane. You know, you can't accept the approach that we take to everything else in the world. They're kind of a methodological dualism. Everything else in the world we study by the standard methods of science, but when we talk about human higher mental faculties, we have to become mystics. 
So therefore, there's a controversy about the existence of universal grammar, which is like, which means a controversy about whether there is some genetic property that distinguishes humans from everybody else, uh, which leads to these uh, to the ability to do doing what we're now doing. But there shouldn't be any controversy about that. Uh, the only question is, what is it? Well, there have been theories about it from the 1950s when these studies began up till the present, and it's a living field, so they keep changing. So in that sense, yes, my views about universal grammar keep changing. Uh, say when Anne walked into my office as a graduate student and told me I was wrong about everything, so okay, my views changed. You know? uh, but uh, in that sense, sure, there's going to be constant uh, change until the field is disappears or is dead or something. And it's a long, there's a long way to go. These are not trivial questions. Uh, at the, the, the sort of general tendency of change, uh, not every linguist would agree by any means, so it's a personal opinion. Uh, at the, in the early stages, when the first question was asked seriously about 50 years ago as to how we are capable of doing what we do all the time, uh, how are we capable of understanding, uh, producing uh, expressions which have, we've never heard, which may have never been uttered in the history of the language and do it over infinite range, uh, the various strange properties that they have as soon as you look at them, how can we do it? The only answer seemed to be that uh, each of us has a highly intricate computational system in the brain which yields these very specific results. But that then poses a paradox, because it must be the case that we all, all humans, have the same genetic capacity with marginal variation. Uh, the reason is if you take uh, a child from, say, a, a hunter-gatherer tribe in the Amazon, and the child is raised in Cambridge, Mass., it'll may just become a graduate student studying quantum physics at MIT with no difference from anyone else, you know, uh, and conversely. So we all have the same capacity, and it's more or less understood why. Uh, the capacity developed very recently in evolutionary time, probably in some window between 100,000 and 50,000 years ago, something like that, and that's just the flick of an eye. So whatever happened never changed, except extremely marginally. So we're all fundamentally identical for all practical purposes. Uh, human genetic variation is very slight anyway, superficial differences, but not very profound. Uh, uh, foreign and outside, say, an extraterrestrial observer looking at us the way we look at uh, frogs would say there's only one human and one language with minor variations. Uh, so on the one hand, it, it's got to be uniform. On the other hand, the, it seemed to be the case that each particular language had a highly intricate and complex system of rules, computational system, and they were very different from one another. And that is a paradox, in fact, a you know, serious paradox. Well, over the years, there have been efforts to deal with it, to try to overcome the paradox. Uh, a major step was taken, and here views on universal grammar, at least for many of us, did change radically, was around 1980. You were there, yeah. It's her fault, uh, when uh, a different view of the matter sort of crystallized, uh, what's called sometimes called the principles and parameters view, uh, the picture that, the that there are fixed principles which are really invariant. Nobody has to acquire them. They're part of universal grammar. And then there's a number of options that can be taken, called parameters, uh, that the child has to pick up from experience. And they have to be pretty simple. You have to be able to pick them up from limited evidence, because that's all there is. So for example, in some languages like English, the uh, uh, it's called a head-first language. So the verb precedes the object, and a preposition precedes the object of the preposition, and so on. Uh, other languages, like say Japanese, are almost the mirror image. Uh, the verb follows the object. Uh, the, postpositions, not prepositions, and so on. So the languages are virtually mirror images of each other. And you have to set the parameter. The child has to set the parameter, which says, am I talking English or am I talking Japanese? 
And that can be, t be determined from very simple data. So that's a reasonable choice of a parameter. Uh, and the hope was that you could find some finite set of parameters, like a finite switch box, where you set the switch, the child has set switches one way or another, and can do it on the basis of fairly simple data. And then once this enters into a predetermined system of principles, you get things which superficially look very different, but are actually almost identical, uh, just differing in a superficial choices. Well, if you could work that out, you'd have solved the paradox. It's a long way to work that out. Uh, but that made it possible at least to confront the issues seriously without facing an immediate near self-contradiction. And it set off a lot of uh, a really rich uh, period of uh, research and inquiry and nothing like it in the thousands of years of history of study of language in the last 25, 30 years of a wide variety of typologically different languages uh, uh, new questions at a depth that could never have been proposed before, sometimes answers uh, leading to new questions and so on. It's been a very lively period. And it also raised another question. What about the principles? Where do they come from? And the fact the choice of parameters. Where do these things come from? If they're in universal grammar, if they're part of the genetic endowment, then they had to evolve somehow. But not a lot could have evolved because it's too recent. You know, you go back 100,000 years, there's, as far as we know, nothing. Uh, humans had the same uh, anatomy. Anything that's preserved in the fossil record is about the same, you know, hundreds of thousands of years back. So some small change must have taken place in the, in the brain, uh, which somehow allowed all of this to suddenly blossom. And Pretty soon after that, again, in evolutionary time, like maybe a couple of tens of thousands of years, which is no time at all, uh, humans started leaving East Africa, uh, where we all come from, as far as anyone knows. So some small group developed this system uh, and then spread all over the world, and now they're all essentially the same. But what evolved in that short period of time cannot have been very complex. You know, you wouldn't expect series of extensive stages, like, say, uh, development of uh, limbs, you know, millions of years. Uh, therefore, what you predict is that uh, some other principle external to language, maybe some principle of nature, a principle of computational efficiency or something like that, which is not specific to language, uh, interacted with a small mutation which just gave rise to the to universal grammar. Well, that sets forth a new goal of research to ask, to see if you can determine that the principles themselves uh, do not have the intricacy that they appear to have, but are actually the result of application of non-linguistic, in fact, non, maybe non-human principles, like general principles of computational efficiency, uh, to whatever small change took place. And the small change was probably uh, the capacity to uh, carry out recursive enumeration, basically, the capacity that gives you the number system, for example, to take uh, two things, two objects already constructed in the mind and make up a new object out of them and then keep that process up indefinitely so you get an infinite array of possible expressions, uh, each with some semantic interpretation and some mode of externalization speech, a sign, whatever it may be. Uh, that would be, and the goal would be to try to show that that was essentially instantaneous. Once the small mutation took place, given the, uh, this operation, the recursive enumeration operation, that allows you to create a discrete infinity of expressions, structured expressions. Well, that's at least a feasible picture. Uh, the trick is to show that it's true, true, or how close it is to true. Uh, can you cut away at the apparent complexity of the principles and show that they can actually be accounted for in terms of uh, general principles of, that hold for organisms generally, perhaps, and maybe even elsewhere in the physical world, uh, and that uh, are instantly or almost instantly applied once the original move is made to, uh, whatever small move it was, to uh, produce the capacity for recursive enumeration. Well, that's a goal. You know. 
far from being attained, but in the last 15, 20 years, there's been considerable progress towards it. That is a lot of things that it seemed 20 years ago you had to assign to the uh, genetic endowment have no, now been rather plausibly shown to be uh, possible consequences of just application, particularly of principles of computational efficiency to uh, a system which had only the uh, ability to uh, construct an infinite hierarchy of expressions. And that, we don't know enough about the brain to know how that might have happened, but that could have been a very small mutation, just changing something in somebody's genome and then spreading through the small breeding group. Uh, so that, in that respect, it's, it's, it's a goal, you know, and steps have been taken towards it. But you would expect that something like that ought to be true, uh, just from the what's known about the uh, history of uh, uh, evolution of uh, Homo sapiens uh, in very recent times, uh, without much opportunity for selection to have had any effect, maybe a small effect, but not much. Uh, so that's, I think, uh, it's in that, that's the tendency of thinking, at least my thinking and some other, many others, uh, on how theories of universal grammar have changed. But the idea that there is universal grammar that exists, that can't be controversial unless you believe in magic, you know, uh, for the elementary reasons that I mentioned. This is from Robin Green, and, and we can absolutely have local questions as well, but this is one from Robin Green who says, uh, you are well known for your criticism of our current generation's lack of insight and sense of history, but what do you see in the younger generations that you personally find energizing and encouraging? Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I've had that uh, criticism of the younger generation, so I'm not sure I accept the premise of the question. I mean, I think it is a very sad fact about our culture, our general culture, that it's extremely insular, ingrown, uh, uh, lack of knowledge of the world, of history, and so on. That instantly goes way back. And I think it's probably less true now than it has been in the past. Uh, but it is certainly true. And it, in the United States, it's dramatic, uh, dramatically true as compared with comparable societies. Uh, there's some obvious reasons for that. The United States is very different from other, any other industrial society in many respects. Uh, for one thing, uh, um, I mean, there's talk about, uh, you know, there's debate about the American empire. Is there one? Isn't there one? And so on. There shouldn't be any debate. This is the one country in the world that was founded as an empire. That's what George Washington called a nascent empire uh, when the country was founded. And the goal, as Washington put it, was to drive the indigenous population, the savages, as he called them, uh, away. They will disappear just like the wolves, who they are identical with except in shape. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, for him, uh, we're going to drive them behind the stony mountains where they belong. And then the country will be free of blot or mixture, red or black. didn't quite make it, but that was the goal. Uh, then this will be the nest from which the entire hemisphere is uh, populated by members of our superior race. Uh, read later Walt Whitman, others, uh, hideous racist comments, which is taken for granted. So yes, it's an empire and extends, supposed to extend everywhere. Uh, the, back in uh, you know, 1820, roughly around then, uh, the principle was laid down that uh, as modern historians put it, that expansion is the path to security. The only way to be secure is to expand. Uh, at that time, the argument was that's why we had to conquer Florida uh, to defend ourselves from uh, what were called the runaway slaves and uh, lawless Indians who were a threat because they were in our way. So we had to expand. And then on to the present, uh, the main scholarly book on the origins of the Bush Doctrine which approves of it, uh, John Lewis Gaddis, historian at Yale, uh, traces it back to that moment and says, yeah, that's the right principle. Expansion is the path to security, and now that means expanding over the whole world and you know, space and the, you know, the galaxy or wherever. That's the only way to be secure and to ensure that the empire rules the world. So it's an unusual country in that respect. I mean, the British wanted to be an empire. They modeled themselves on Rome. Uh, 
but uh, the United States had a different picture from the origins. Furthermore, it's a tr once the native population was you know, driven beyond the Stony Mountains, as Jefferson put it, it was, the country was, continent was open. You know. uh, they uh, very rich, you know, very rich in resources, uh, ultimate security, no, nobody ever had comparable security, uh, uh, all for us, you know, uh, whoever the waves of immigrants are, uh, and there's no reason to look anywhere else. It's essentially homogeneous, so you travel in Europe, you don't have to go very far to hear completely different languages. If you go back 50 years, it was even more so before the unifying effects of uh, television and national states. Just, you know, plenty of people in Europe can't talk to their grandmothers because they speak a different language. But uh, even now in Europe, you don't have to go very far to see different cultures, different languages, you know, and so on. In the United States, you go from Boston to Los Angeles, and you have nothing changes. You know, slight difference in accent. Maybe the cars, the superhighways are faster out there. But uh, so, so there's every reason to expect people to be insular. And you see it dramatically. I mean, people just are unaware of what's happening in the outside world. Uh, actually, this changed significantly after 9-11. It had an interesting effect in the United States. One of the effects was to engender fear. That was the first attack on American soil since the British had uh, burned down Washington in 1814. Uh, people mentioned Pearl Harbor, but it's irrelevant. That was an attack on a U.S. naval base in a, what amounted to a colony. Uh, and uh, by our standards, incidentally, a very legitimate attack. I can explain that if it's not obvious. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, but that wasn't an attack on the national territory. In fact, there has been none except tiny forays. You know, Pancho Villa got a couple of miles into the country or something. But uh, here was an attack on the national territory, the kind that other countries face all the time. And it did, uh, it engendered fear. That's not what's supposed to happen. Uh, but it also opened a lot of minds. So I think since then, the insularity has declined. Uh, more people know and are curious about the world, and even about history. And that's largely an effect of the 1960s. The 1960s had a highly civilizing effect on the society. That's why they're almost universally condemned as a terrible period, uh, the time of troubles and so on. You're going to hear a lot about that this year because it's the 40th anniversary of uh, 1968, or 40th, didn't do the arithmetic, but a lot of talk about 1968, terrible time. Actually, it was a terrible time. It civilized the country. Uh, you see it, say, right at MIT. Like, uh, say, when I got here, if you walked down the halls at MIT, what you saw was uh, well-dressed, deferential white males uh, doing their homework, uh, no political meetings advertised. Uh, you know, you do your work. You build the electrical circuit, you know, build the bridge, whatever it is. That's a little bit of a caricature, but that's pretty much what it was. You take a look down the halls now, it's totally different. Half women, third minorities, uh, informal relations, a lot of activism on all kind of topics. And that's symbolic of what happened in the country. And that's a consequence of the civilizing effect of the 60s, which is, of course, very frightening to elites. People are supposed to be passive and apathetic and obedient. Uh, in fact, one of the major studies of the horrible effect of the 1960s by liberal internationalists, incidentally, uh, condemned the era for its excess of democracy. The book is called The Crisis of Democracy. It was too much democracy in the 60s. Uh, people who were supposed to be passive and apathetic and obedient, like uh, minorities, women, uh, the young, the old, uh, what are called the special interests, that is the whole population, except for the corporate sector. Uh, they're supposed to be uh, passive, apathetic, and obedient. They weren't doing it. They were trying to enter the political arena to press the demands, you know, change the society, it's intolerable. We have to have more moderation in democracy. In particular, they were concerned about what they called the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young, their phrase, meaning schools, universities, uh, churches, and so on. They weren't indoctrinating the young properly, and that's why you got all these excesses like uh, the women's movement and uh, opposition to aggression and all sorts of terrible things. Uh, but uh, the country did change, uh, and positively, and it's changed a lot since then. 
and that has, uh, going back to recognizing history, it did that too. At the time when, I'll just give you a personal example, which is not untypical. Uh, I had a daughter in uh, fourth grade in 1969, I remember the time precisely because of the context. And this is in, a, in Lexington, which is a, it's called a very progressive town, you know, professionals, academics, uh, everybody votes for McGovern, you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, I happened to be looking through her school textbook one day. It was called uh, Exploring New England. Uh, the structure of the textbook was uh, uh, there's a, an, there's a young boy, his name is Robert, and he's being taken through colonial New England by an older man who shows him the glories of New England. I was curious. I was wondering what, how they're going to handle the massacres. You know, like there was a terrible massacre, the Pequot massacre, uh, in which the colonists uh, waited for the men to leave the village and then went in and slaughtered all the uh, women and children and old men. And when the men came back, they were frightened and they all fled, you know, so got rid of the Pequots. So how are they going to handle this, you know? So I, I looked at it and it was described accurately, uh, but with praise. And it ends up with uh, Robert, the young boy, saying, I wish I were a man and had been there, you know. Well, you know, I sort of couldn't believe it. I showed it to my wife. She was appalled, went to talk to the teacher. The teacher couldn't see what was wrong with that, you know. That was 1969. You couldn't have a textbook like that in any corner of the country today. It's inconceivable. There's some recognition of the horrors of the past. Uh, incidentally, the uh, founding fathers were well aware of it. Uh, John Quincy Adams, for example, uh, uh, talked about that uh, hapless race of Native Americans who we are exterminating with such uh, merciless uh, cruelty and so on. But then it sort of disappeared and it just became an empty continent full of a few scattered uh, hunter-gatherers and uh, uh, if we killed a couple of them, that's fine. That's why we drive them over the Stony Mountains. Uh, but by now that's gone. You know, there's at least some appreciation of it and also of slavery and other things. So there's more understanding of the history and there's more understanding of the outside world, though it's still pretty insular. And I think it's getting better. So I think the next generation will be even better in this respect. Uh, a question from Trevor Sarah that maybe ties in. Uh, due to the internet, mass media is increasingly becoming more distributed blogs, independent news, etc. Uh, how does the internet media impact propaganda model described in manufacturing consent? Mm -hmm. Well, literally the propaganda model described in manufacturing consent does not uh, narrowly hold of the internet. I mean, that's a model that's concerned with the institutional structure of the media. Okay, the media, their institutional structure is major corporations selling audiences to other businesses, to simplify it. And that's not true of the internet. So it doesn't apply directly, but it's not completely inapplicable. So though the internet, like almost the entire high-tech economy, is a product of the state sector, I mean, contrary to illusions, the United States is very far from a free enterprise market economy. Uh, those of you, oh, I'm sure all of you people know that things like computers and the internet and microelectronics and biotechnology and go on across the list uh, come out of the state sector. At places like MIT, in fact, for long periods, the internet was in the state sector for about 30 years or more before it was handed over to private enterprise for profit. But uh, uh, but the but the internet. Uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, there is a question, and in fact it's a live question now, about uh, uh, keeping the uh, internet neutral, neutrality of the internet. So will the few uh, private systems that have control of access to the internet once it became privatized, uh, will they be able to use that control to uh, differentiate access to yield preferred, say, you know, fast, uh, easy access to the places where they want you to go and uh, make it harder and you know, more devious and so on for the places they don't want you to go. So net neutrality is a big issue. Uh, you, you people know more about this than I do, so I won't go on to talk about it. But in that respect, in that corner of the 
system, yes, the propaganda model still holds. But other than that, it's been, at least in its early years, a very free system. Uh, when it was under state control, like controlled by the Pentagon, it was totally free. That's uh, an illusion that many people have. The Pentagon is, I mean, actually we know that here. The, the MIT was like, you know, maybe 90% Pentagon funded up until the early 70s. And it was a period of the greatest freedom. Uh, no classified work, uh, complete free interchange, you could work on anything you wanted, uh, nobody cared. Uh, because the uh, generals, uh, unlike many economists, are well aware uh, that the, it's the state sector that's providing a large part of the uh, uh, initiative, uh, the dynamism, the inventiveness, and so on, that keeps the high-tech economy going. So they didn't put many constraints in. As it gets more corporatized, there's more constraints. Uh, but uh, uh, the, uh, for a long time, it was just in the arm. It was the military. You know, it was ARPA. The, uh, that, that was the former internet. And just to give you an illustration of how it worked, uh, the United States was, I happen to have a daughter who was living in Nicaragua in the 1980s. And the United States was carrying out a major terrorist war against Nicaragua, practically destroyed the country. And communication was impossible. You couldn't go by phone, you know, mail wasn't going and so on. But I could communicate with my daughter through the Pentagon system. Uh, since I'm at MIT, I was on the, on the ARPANET, and she found some place where she was on the ARPANET. So thanks to the Pentagon, uh, we were able to communicate uh, during a period when the U.S. was trying to destroy the country. Uh, that's an indication of how free it was. And the question is, can it be kept free? So yes, that's a problem. Uh, but there are other issues that arise with the Internet that are, are serious. I mean, it's undoubtedly a tremendous contribution. If you're interested in research, for example, it's, it's just fantastic. I, you know, I probably do 50 Google searches a day or something like that. And you can get things that you'd really have to... I haven't been to a library for a long time. Thankfully, I have some friends and colleagues who go to the library for me. But a lot of what you had to go to the library for, uh, you can just pick up quickly. And in fact, a lot more. Uh, if you want to find out about information about the, you know, say what's going on in the world, news and so on, yes, if you know where to look, you can find it. A much wider array of information is available. All of that is positive, but it also has a negative side. In fact, a number of negative sides. Uh, imagine, say, that you're a biologist uh, and you now have available every article that's been published all over the world on the field that you're interested in, and you spend your time reading those articles. Well, the end result is you're the worst biologist in history. You know, it's a total waste of time. Uh, in order to become a serious biologist, you have to know what you're looking for. You pick, if you're flooded with a mass of information and you sort of try to wade through it, you're totally paralyzed. You have to know what to look for. You have to have a framework of understanding, you know, some background conception of what's going on. The framework can't be rigid, like you have to be willing to let it be modified, uh, but it's, it's indispensable. If you don't have it, you're just uh, flooded with meaningless information. Uh, well, the problem is that people, the ma ma large majority of people who are using the internet do have a framework, but it's the framework that comes from the indoctrination that they've been subjected to. Uh, namely what the propaganda model applies to, and it also generalizes to the uh, academic, uh, you know, to the schools and the uh, colleges and to the general uh, intellectual community. There is an intellectual community of which the media are a part, which I don't have time to I'll talk about it if you like, but it does give an extremely skewed picture of the world. I could illustrate it from this morning's newspapers if you want. In fact, you can always, when I give talks on the media, I almost never prepare them for a very simple reason. That morning's newspapers give all the evidence you need. Never failed yet in Europe or here. Uh, so I can talk about it. But it is an extremely narrow doctrinal uh, universe. And in fact, the participants have it internalized. If you want to see a good example of that, do a Google search and find uh, a program by, with Char an interview with Charlie Rose, you know, the intellectual man's interviewer, uh, which he interviewed uh, the, you know, the, the most respected 
correspondent in, uh, in Iraq, you know, John Burns, who's kind of like the dean of the foreign policy, uh, foreign, uh, foreign uh, uh, correspondent. And it's a very interesting interview. Uh, he, he asks Burns various questions about reporting of Iraq, and Burns uh, expresses quite clearly, and I'm sure unconsciously, uh, the doctrinal framework that, that shapes coverage and interpretation. Uh, to put it simply, we have to be cheering for the home team. So, of course, the home team is perfect. You know, that's the picture. So what he says is, you have to get it in his words, but the picture is that uh, the United States, certainly since the Second World War, has been the major force uh, in the world in uh, uh, protecting human rights, uh, freedom, justice, all kind of wonderful things. Uh, history is irrelevant. I mean, we don't look at that. That's boring. Uh, but it's, that's the nature of the United States, like its essence. And he says if the outcome of the Iraq war was that we would lose our willingness to intervene all over the world with force to protect human rights and everything the way we've been doing for the past 50 years, it'll be dark days. Okay, that's the picture. It's not unlike the picture that you would have heard from a correspondent in Pravda in 1985 about how Stalin was defending democracy and human rights and so on against the fascist attack and you know, probably would have believed it. I'm sure John Burns believes it. But if you look at actual coverage, it conforms pretty well to what he describes. Uh, well, if that's the approach you take towards using the internet, uh, you might as well be reading some local tabloid. Uh, that's what you'll find. If you have a different framework of interpretation and understanding, you'll find other things. Uh, whether it's science or public affairs or anything else. And that, to achieve that requires something way beyond access. It requires understanding. Uh, and that comes out of other factors. Uh, on frameworks, uh, Brian Klimt writes, Politicians are adept at changing public opinion by inventing new phrases such as enemy combatant and enhanced interrogation techniques. Does this expose some flaw in humans that we reason based on surface words rather than their underlying meanings? I don't think it's a flaw of humans, and I'm not sure how much to determine. See, there's two different questions you have to, there's a question you have to distinguish here. So, so go back to the propaganda model. That was a discussion of what the media are doing as institutions. And in fact, it generalizes to the intellectual culture much much more broadly. But there's a separate question, and that is how much are people influenced by it? That's quite a separate question. Okay, so to what extent do people in accept and internalize the doctrinal system that's, say, described by John Burns? Well, the answer is pretty complex when you look. Uh, so, for example, uh, say take the Vietnam War. It's far enough back so we can think about it a little bit objectively, perhaps. If you look over the Vietnam War, there was never in the mainstream, and never is a strong word, but close to never, like 99.9%, uh, a principled critique of the war. Uh, New York Times correspondent C.J. Chivers was there recently and talks about booming Grozny. It used to be rubble, now it's booming. They have electricity uh, run by Chechens. Uh, of course, the Russians are in the background, but uh, great success. I mean, if Petraeus could achieve anything remotely like that in... Uh, Iraq, he'd probably be crowned king, you know. But we don't praise Putin, at least we shouldn't. We condemn it, uh, even though it succeeded in their terms, like the Germans succeeded in Vichy France. It was a French-run society, more or less stable. But we don't praise it. However, for ourselves, we take totally different principles. We never, almost never, permit or can even think of a principled critique of our own crimes. You can test it. And a good, but what about public opinion? Well, there you get a striking gulf. Uh, so, for example, when the Vietnam War ended, uh, everyone, you know, serious analyst had to write a commentary on it. And the most interesting ones, as always, are way out on, are the ones at the left extreme of the mainstream. So, say, take Anthony Lewis of the New York Times, who's about as far out as he can get and, you know, not be from Neptune or something. Uh, he wrote a critical commentary. He said the Vietnam War began with uh, what he called blundering efforts to do good. 
Uh, notice that that's mostly tautology. Since we carried it out, it was efforts to do good, period. Uh, no further discussion necessary. That's by definition. It was blundering because it didn't entirely work. So it began with blundering efforts to do good. But he says by 1969, come back to the date, it was clear to most of, uh, most of the world that it was too costly to ourselves. Okay, uh, That's the left end of the critical spectrum. You can search and see if you can find anything that goes beyond that. Well, what did the public think? Well, we know. In 1969, it happens, the first general polls were taken of public opinion on the Vietnam War, uh, general important ones, Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. And they continue to be taken up till today, quarter, uh, quadrennial. Uh, in 1969, 70% of the public said the war was fundamentally wrong and immoral, not a mistake. Try to find that anywhere in mainstream discussion, okay? Good exercise. And those figures persist up until the latest polls, a little vacillation, but basically, this is a huge gulf between public opinion and intellectual elites, uh, the doctrinal managers. Uh, and that's true on a lot of other issues. It's true on the Iraq war, it's true on the threat to invade Iran. It's true on uh, national health care. It's true on relations with Cuba. You know, just run across the list. And it turns out there's a huge gulf between public opinion and intellectual opinion, hence doctrine, you know, media and so on. So that does raise a question about the extent to which the public actually accepts this. To an extent, they do. So take your examples like enemy combatant. Now, what's an enemy combatant? Well, actually, one of them's coming up for trial. I think it may be the first trial from Guantanamo. It turns out it's a kid who was picked up as an enemy combatant when he was 15 years old uh, because uh, he did something, maybe threw a stone or did something, uh, that, or maybe shot or something, an American soldier. Okay, so therefore we have to try him and maybe sentence him. You know, he's been in Guantanamo for years, and now who knows what will happen to him. What kind of a framework is that? I mean, if uh, you know, if the United States was invaded by Iran, let's say, and some 15-year-old kid uh, tried to do something to the invaders, is he criminal? No. I mean, the the framework, the conception is kind of kind of like an outer space. Unfortunately, it's real. And the, what was the other term used? Uh, Enhanced interrogation. Yeah, enhanced interrogation. This is another word for torture. Like, there's a huge fuss now about Guantanamo. Uh, delegations are taken there by the army to show how beautifully the prisoners are treated, and there's uh, books and articles about is there torture and so on and so forth. It's all totally beside the point, entirely beside the point. As soon as you hear that uh, those who are captured are taken to Guantanamo, you know it's a torture chamber. There's no other reason for sending them to Guantanamo. Why not send them to a security prison in New York, let's say? Okay, perfectly safe, they'll never get out and so on. Well, the problem is if you send them to New York, automatically you start getting the whole civil rights system coming in. Uh, do they have lawyers? You know, uh, can they be tortured? Uh, you know, are they told the charges against them and so on? You send them to Guantanamo, you can do anything you like. Uh, so therefore, as soon as we hear the word Guantanamo, we know it's torture chamber, without the investigations, uh, without the inquiries, uh, anything. Uh, and then you can ask a further question, well, what's the U.S. doing in Guantanamo? I mean, uh, actually, the, the, the reason they chose Guantanamo is because they can pretend that the U.S. doesn't have jurisdiction because it's in Cuba. Okay, so the courts don't have jurisdiction, and there's big debates about that. Uh, but the debates are ridiculous, of course. And what is the U.S. doing in Guantanamo in the first place? Well, it turns out, if you look back, that there's a treaty between the U.S. and Cuba, uh, which Cuba signed at gunpoint. It was under military occupation, uh, and the treaty, hence, has absolutely no validity by any standards you can think of. And the treaty allowed the United States to use Guantanamo, which is a big port, uh, as a coaling station and, uh, uh, for, for the Navy. Didn't say anything about uh, keeping uh, prisoners there. So we're violating the uh, illegal treaty uh, that we forced on Cuba. 
And in fact, why does the United States, that leads to a further question, why does the US hold on to Guantanamo altogether? Well, for one thing, it is a major port. You need a naval base for controlling the Caribbean and the South America. Uh, but there's another reason. It prevents Cuban development. That means that the eastern end of the island is blocked from development. So if you want to strangle and destroy Cuba, which we've wanted to do since 1959, for, for reasons that are explained in the internal record, because of, and go back to the Kennedy and Johnson administration, because of its successful defiance of U.S. principles going back to the Monroe Doctrine. No Russians. The Monroe Doctrine stated that we're going to run the hemisphere. That was the goal of the founding fathers. Uh, as I said, Jefferson, it's the nest. We're the nest from which we'll people the whole continent, getting rid of you know, the, red, the red men and the Spanish speakers. And Cuba is carrying out successful defiance of this, and that's intolerable. So therefore, we have to seriously punish the people of Cuba, as we've been doing with uh, terrorism, economic strangulation, and so on. Incidentally, in opposition to popular will here, a large percentage of the American population, that runs usually around two-thirds, think we ought to enter into normal relations with Cuba. But uh, holding on to Guantanamo is part of the strangulation of Cuba. Uh, ensuring that they can't develop the end of the island, which would be a base for trade with Europe, and so on and so forth. Well, all of these questions are the ones that would be in the headlines in a free press, and not whether this particular 15-year-old uh, shot an American soldier invading his country. So yeah, there's a lot hidden behind the word enemy combatant. And in fact, you just take about almost any word of political discourse, you almost pick it at random, and it has two meanings. It has its literal meaning, and it has its doctrinal meaning. And the two have usually almost nothing to do with each other. Uh, so take, say, aggression, uh, important term. It has a technical meaning. It was defined at the Nuremberg Tribunal, and that was then accepted internationally. And what it means is the obvious thing, sending uh, military forces uh, into another country, uh, you know, not at their request or something. Okay, that's aggression. And that's the term we use applied to anyone else. Like the Nazi war criminals, the primary reason they were hanged was because of the crime of aggression. And incidentally, the, uh, which is defined more carefully, it defines the Nuremberg Tribunal defines aggression as uh, the supreme international crime, which encompasses, which differs from other crimes in that it encompasses all of the evil that follows. So the initial aggression in Iraq encompasses the sectarian warfare, uh, the uh, destruction of the antiquities, uh, the millions of refugees, everything that happened since is encompassed in the initial act of aggression. Uh, Justice Jackson, the American justice at Nuremberg, uh, gave a passionate uh, declaration to the tribunal. He said that we are handing the defendants a poisoned chalice. And if we ever sip from it, meaning if we are ever guilty of the same crimes, we must suffer the same punishment, or else the whole trial is a farce. Okay, again, those should be the headlines, except for one problem. The United States cannot commit aggression by definition. Uh, we don't commit aggression. Uh, take a look at the front page of the Wall Street Journal today, big lead article. Uh, Iran still, the U.S. claims Iran is still sending arms to uh, Iraq. It may be true. Is Iran the only country sending arms to Iraq? Uh, well, uh, Condoleezza Rice a little while back was asked uh, on television, uh, what's the solution to the Iraq problem? She said, simple. Uh, just end the flow of foreign fighters and foreign arms, and then it's over. Uh, nobody batted an eyelash for a good reason. We, our forces are not foreign. They're indigenous. Wherever they are, they're indigenous. If we invaded Canada, we would be there by right. And if a Canadian 15-year-old kid threw a stone at an American soldier, he'd be an enemy combatant and we'd send him to Guantanamo. And it follows from a very elementary principle. It's the one on which the country was founded. We're a nascent empire. Expansion is the path to security. We, we're indigenous everywhere. We own the world, you know. so therefore the questions can't be asked. Uh, and if you look at commentary and debate and discussion, you find that that's internalized. 
nobody points to it. It's just part of our picture of the world, you know? And that infects everything. That's why every term, like the terms you use, has, from an outside point of view, sounds like you're talking about a bunch of madmen. Mari Bingham writes, there's been a lot of discussion about the detrimental effects of email, instant messengers, and uh, phone text messaging and the like on syntax and grammar, especially English. Do you feel this is the case, or these changes are just a part of the natural evolution of language? Well, I have experience with it, having two 15-year-old grandsons. (laughs) When my grandson comes over to the house to, to do what's engage in what's called doing his homework, you know, Sunday evening. Of course, everything's put off till Sunday evening. Uh, he sits there with his computer in front of him, uh, earplugs, listening to something that's called music. Don't ask me to describe it. Uh, and while he's doing this thing called homework, he's meanwhile text messaging to about 15 friends uh, in a form which I can't even read. You know, it's just a few letters and, you know, uh, it's not doing anything to the language. I mean, I think that's a mistake. The language is robust enough so it's not going to be affected by that. But I think it's doing something to the minds. You know, this, uh, the kids are just stimulus hungry. They can't sit aside, like our, my own children, let's say, you know, they'd go to the library and pick up 10 books and come home and go off into a corner and read the books. Actually, I have a granddaughter in, uh, grew up in Nicaragua, now in Mexico, and when she comes to visit, the first thing she does, she's 10 years old, go to the public library, come back with a stack of books, go off in the corner and read them. That's almost inconceivable for a kid that age here. I mean, maybe there's some, but, uh, you know, they're just, they have to be stimulated constantly by noise, by visual imagery, by uh, what's called interchange with friends, although the interchange is so superficial that it's it's shocking, you know, to take a look at it when they decode it for you. And I'm sure that's having an effect. It's having an effect on children growing up, and I don't think a good effect. Uh, but uh, it's not really an effect on the language. That's, that's not going to change. Uh, I mean, it's true that if you look over the history of language, uh, teenage, teenagers generally tend to develop their own sort of argo, you know, way of talking. And that is one of the sources of innovation and change in language, because the teenagers grow up and, uh, you know, you get what they sort of develop as peer group uh, separation from the adult world does have some effect on what the next stage of the language is, though not, you know, not like on the syntax or anything like that. Uh, and, but this, I think, is serious, and it's having, and I think one should be concerned about the effect on the children. I can see the differences in say, my grandchildren who grew up here and the ones who grew up south of the border, you know. And I suspect that's fairly general. As for email, it is a mixed blessing. I mean, I think it's a great thing. On the other hand, I spend maybe five or six hours a night just answering queries and comments. I'm not sure that's the best way of uh, distributing energy, but... uh, Well, thank you very much for coming.